Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined, as always, by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. It's good to see you, Jacob. It's good to see you again as well. So, Jacob, I just made a Gmail account. Uh, the address is cfaa222 at gmail.com. And the password is all one word, all lowercase, up, up, down, down, left, right. Do not access this email address. I am expressly forbidding you from doing that. If you decide to spurn my terms and services, and we're going to sign into this account using the information that I just said on this podcast, guess what? You would be committing a crime. Well, maybe. Yeah. Well, today we're going to tackle the legal ins and outs of the confusing domain of computer crime law. But first, we need to understand the most important law governing cybercrime. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA, as we're going to keep saying, was passed by Congress in 1986 in order to make sure that computer crimes didn't go unpunished. Specifically, it protects federal computers, bank computers, and anything else really connected to the internet. Trespassing, threatening, damaging, spying, and accessing without authorization or exceeding your authorized access are actions covered by the CFAA. Fun fact! It's said that the inspiration of the CFAA came after Ronald Reagan saw the movie War Games, where an AI almost starts World War III, starring Matthew Broderick. Reagan asked if hacking U.S. computers like this would be possible. And at the time, this was far-fetched and something humorous. However, upon looking into it, the conclusion was it was not only possible, but much worse than previously imagined. Nowadays, hacks have become a part of everyday life. I think we can all agree that criminals should be held accountable for their actions. Today, some of the largest criminal schemes are hatched and executed while online. In Bangladesh in 2016, there was an attempted theft of $1 billion. Equifax made headlines last year after hackers secured social security numbers, addresses, and credit card information of over 145 million Americans. In 2018, we've already seen a massive cryptocurrency heist in South Korea, totaling half a billion in losses. Laws like the CFAA are important in fighting crimes like these because they update our legal capacity with our technological capacity. Unfortunately, computer crime law is often criticized as filling in the gaps between other federal criminal laws. Right. Some critics argue that in its pursuit of filling in these legal cracks, the language in the CFAA can be vague and problematic. One such critic, Tim Wu, a Columbia law professor and originator of the term net neutrality, describes the CFAA as, and I quote, the worst law in technology. The CFAA, he argues, is not only vague, but often results in severe punishments for actions that cause no economic or physical harm. The biggest complaint originates from the phrase unauthorized access, which Wu describes as no one really knowing what it means. That means if something is overly broad, it could be unconstitutional. Well, what do you mean by unconstitutional? Like it's against the law? But isn't the CFAA already law? The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a statutory law, which means it's specific and established by a legislator, in this case, Congress. Laws like traffic rules, emission standards, anything like that, those are statutory laws. 
When something is unconstitutional, that means it breaks constitutional law. Constitutional law is the roles, structures, and powers of our government. Think of it as the skeleton that everything else sits on top of. In the U.S., if a statutory law is ruled unconstitutional by a proper court, it can be overturned. A recent example is the marriage equality decision by the Supreme Court. In the case of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, some aspects have been upheld by the courts. So, going back to our email example, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled in 2016 that sharing passwords without authorization could be grounds for prosecution under the CFAA. So, next time you're on your friend's Netflix, you might be engaging in criminal activity. Speaking of passwords, the legal ramifications of passwords have gotten considerable attention these past few years. Let's say that you're being prosecuted under the CFAA. You get caught. But all the evidence is on your computer. So, this is where it gets a little complicated. Constitutionally, the Fifth Amendment protects citizens from incriminating ourselves in court, and would protect the privacy of personal information, like the password that gives you access to all the evidence for the investigation into your crime. In episode two, we discussed the ramifications of password protections and privacy with Michael Spector. But that privacy is just as important for criminal investigations. To discuss this topic further, we turn to my guest this week. Uh, my name is Laurent Sakharov. I'm a law professor. I'm visiting at uh, George Washington. And I specialize in Fourth Amendment laws, cyber crime, cybersecurity. Well, thank you for joining me. So what are the current protections in place to maintain your right to your password for like your phone or for any of your devices? Well, the main protection is the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And so as the phrase implies, it will only protect your password if you're subject to some kind of criminal investigation. And that's the area in which I focus. On the other hand, there are or may be other circumstances in which your password is protected because the underlying information is protected. So your medical information may be protected by, or is protected by statute. Student information is protected. So if the information is independently protected, then you have that protection. Um, but the, the interesting case, the hard case, are devices like iPhones or even laptops that automatically lock, and lock means the hard drive is encrypted. And so if the police or the FBI are doing an investigation and they have probable cause to believe that there's relevant data files in your on your hard drive, the question is when can they compel you to either give your password up or enter your password so they they can get access to that information. So on the subject of, you know, like law enforcement trying to get into your phone, you know, what rights they're able to, how does one get a warrant to your phone and how does it differ in the traditional sense from like a regular warrant for like your house, for instance? Well, the, uh, the police can get a warrant if they have probable cause to believe that there's evidence on your device of a crime, usually a crime committed by you. Uh, but usually that's pretty easy to get if they already have arrested you. If they've arrested you for a crime, that means they already have probable cause to believe, for example, that you've been dealing drugs. So then the additional amount of information they would need to believe that your phone contains evidence that would help to show that you are dealing drugs is very little. I mean, almost every drug dealer is going to have something on their phone that uh, substantiates it because the phones, our phones have almost all of our lives on them in some digital form. So it could be location information, messages with customers or um, suppliers, iMessages, emails. It could be um, photos that you have taken of 
of yourself with drugs or there's a whole range of things that the uh, police will regularly say are the types of evidence that they have probable cause to believe they'll find on a given device. Right. I mean, a phone is basically an extension of yourself in this day and age. Is Would, would a Fifth Amendment protection, would that still protect you in this case against a warrant or no? Well, that is the extremely complex question that faces law enforcement today, that faces courts today, is how to balance the individual's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination with respect to the password against law enforcement's entitlement to get uh, evidence when they have a warrant. They have a warrant. They have probable cause. They have a warrant. And law enforcement argues that the Fourth Amendment, uh, that's all that's required is to satisfy the Fourth Amendment requirement. Um, and having an individual or compelling an individual to enter their password to their device is merely an adjunct to executing the warrant, and therefore there's nothing to see there. On the other hand, individuals are going to say, no, 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 wait a second. Um, my password, if you com- at least compel me to orally state it, that's testimony under the Fifth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment absolutely protects me against being compelled to make a statement. Um, the Supreme Court has not addressed this question. Lower courts are struggling with it and sometimes come to uh, different results. Most courts agree that if the police compel you to orally state your password, that that violates the Fifth Amendment. The hard question is if they compel you to enter your password into the device to unlock it uh, in such a way that no one sees the password, no one records it, and the device itself does not record it so that it can't be recovered by law enforcement. In that case, the question is, is that more like turning a key, which is a purely physical act, or is it more like a Fifth Amendment protected act that has some component of cognition um, and then the debate is, is, is it enough like Fifth Amendment testimony to enjoy Fifth Amendment protections? Right. And it's also kind of raised the question of, you know, the biometric aspect of it. Like you can be compelled to place your finger to scan to open your phone. Is that not correct? Yeah. So that's one of the complications is that if you have just your thumbprint protecting your phone, most courts hold that the government can get a warrant to seize your thumb, meaning to push your thumb forcefully, if necessary, to open it. Um, And that that does not violate the Fourth Amendment because you have a warrant, and it doesn't violate the Fifth Amendment because that's truly not testimonial in any in any way that we care about. Um, and that falls into a separate line of cases that the Supreme Court has already decided. For a 100 years, the Supreme Court has held that it does not violate the Fifth Amendment to compel a person to display their physical characteristics. So if the... Um, court is trying or if someone's being tried for a crime and the robber wore a certain shirt uh, the court can compel the defendant to try the shirt on so the jury can see does it fit Um, now that's a supreme court case from the early 1900s but of course that will sound very familiar from the oj case where um, oj tried on a, a glove i mean in the end it worked out well for him Um, But in most of the physical characteristic cases, uh, the defendant does not want to reveal the characteristic, but the court says that they can be compelled, uh, even in the face of a Fifth Amendment objection, because it's merely a physical characteristic and therefore not testimony. 
Hmm. And I, so then the question is, does entering a password to a device resemble more a mere physical act that displays physical characteristics or stating something? My view is that it resembles more stating something, but it's, it's not an easy question. It kind of gets wrapped up into the argument about is data property, you know, is, is your password your property kind of a thing, would you say? Well, I, w I, w I would steer away from calling the password property because that suggests that it's a concrete thing, like a key. If it, well, it depends, who, <laughs> it depends on whose side you are in a sense, but if it's a concrete thing like a key, the government can definitely seize it or subpoena it without there being very many Fifth Amendment problems. So if I literally just have a key to a safe, and they subpoena me and demand by court order that I produce it, there's no, almost no Fifth Amendment right to the key itself in any event. But if we think of the password uh, itself not as a physical object or a possession, but as an act that reveals information, then it starts to look more like testimony. So the way most courts have handled the dilemma um, is to say, well, Entering a password is an act, but it resembles testimony enough to get at least some Fifth Amendment protections. And the reason it resembles testimony is that when you enter your password, you're implicitly communicating that the computer is yours, that you have access to the computer, that you possess the files that are on the computer, and that you knowingly possess the files that are on the computer. So if those files are themselves contraband, say uh, child pornography, by entering the password and opening the device, you have basically admitted to knowingly possessing those images. And so the only thing the prosecutor has left to do is to prove that the images actually depict minors and engage in sexual conduct, um, but you've admitted that you knowingly possess them um, by entering your password. And so many courts have held that kind of byproduct admission um, that arises from entering the password suffices to make the act of entering a password count as testimony and therefore protected by the Fifth Amendment. That's a lot of nuance for something that could be just four numbers. It's quite difficult. Would you say that current laws are sufficient or insufficient to uh, address the problems posed over password disclosure? Well, it's uh, something that could be solved by a statute, but possibly not. So what I mean by that is if the fifth, if the courts, if many of the courts are right in holding that the Fifth Amendment protects passwords, at least in some cases, neither Congress nor the states can pass a statute that reduces those protections because the Fifth Amendment is superior to statutory law. So the question is whether the Congress or the states should pass legislation or statutes to address the password problem. And it depends on what the Supreme Court holds with respect to the Fifth Amendment. If the Supreme Court holds that the Fifth Amendment protects passwords in the majority of these cases, then no statute can undo that result because the Fifth Amendment is superior to statute. But if the reverse happens, if the Supreme Court holds that the Fifth Amendment does not protect passwords, then Congress or the states could pass laws that provide more protection for passwords than the Fifth Amendment does. Now, 
depending the Supreme Court ruling on this, Congress or the states could pass statutes that govern when and how passwords ha- can be compelled from individuals. There are no. Uh, this is just a side question. There are no current pending Supreme Court cases on this matter, correct? Well, there is a petition for cert from a Third Circuit case, and the petition is pending, but the court, as far as I know, hasn't yet decided whether to take that case. Okay. I will leave with this parting question. What makes cyber law so difficult to write? So if you mean, like, by cyber law, if you mean statutes that regulate um, cyber crimes... Yeah, like cyber crime law. I'm sorry. Yeah, cyber crime law is hard to write because... Uh, the internet is so open by its very nature. You can just go visit any website. And so it's hard to draw the line between merely visiting a website and visiting it in a way that's criminal. Now, some cases stand out as obviously criminal. So the Equifax hack where they hacked millions of people's personal information is clearly criminal, in part because they had a, a, a purpose to, or, well, we don't know what their purpose was yet, but Assuming they had a purpose to gain financially, that would make that an easier case. But a lot of the hard cases are cases in which people visit uh, internet sites or websites um, and use information in ways that the uh, website might not love, but that are basically otherwise legitimate uses of the information. And so it's very, very hard to craft a line where we punish hackers who are malicious and either damaging computers or financially gaining, but protect um, more innocent uh, uses of the internet and the web for people who are really just gathering information for legitimate purposes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say in media arrest, you're caught hacking into Amazon, right? The police knock down your door, handcuffs on, and they grab your phone. What happens, Jacob? Well, depends on if you're logged into the phone or not. In fact, a lot of the times in police raids, they try to make sure you're on your device when they do the raid so that they don't have to actually deal with any of this controversy surrounding the Fifth Amendment or the statutory uh, law that, that surrounds it. Because you already have access to the phone, they don't need a warrant to get into it. You know, or there's no, there's no difficulty about compelling you to give the password or anything like that. Um, actually, there's an interesting bit. If they already have access to the phone, you know, in this raid, they actually have a guy who is dedicated to uh, continuously swiping the phone to make sure it doesn't turn off. So you have a dedicated uh, phone toucher. <laughs> I wonder how uh, you get that job. Uh, lots of practice. When you have a phone that has been locked... As we discussed in the interview, the the phone is also encrypted when it's locked, as a lot of people will recall the Apple phone iPhone case with the, I think it was the San Bernardino? Yeah, San Bernardino shooting. Yeah. Um, And there was controversy about if that encryption could be broken or not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is definitely a question that is raised um, in addition to this. If if you can just circumvent forcing the divulsion of the password and instead just break into the phone. And there's been somewhat of a push to have entities like Apple to create a backdoor or to break their encryption. But this itself kind of raises questions about the security of the phone, if it is breakable. You know, if you're designing a phone that is decryptable, then it's not really going to be that secure. And you open the door for more malicious actors being able to access that phone in the future. Right. And if you want to know more about this, please listen to episode two of Decrypted with Michael Spector. Now that we're wrapping up, here's one last announcement for you all. 
If you get our podcast from iTunes or a podcast app, you don't need to worry about it. Everything should update fine. You'll have no trouble. But if you're listening to us only on SoundCloud, you're going to have to go to our website, which is going to be decryptedpodcast.com. You can also reach us at, there is also a page at the GW homepage for us as well. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorps program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Fun fact, it said that the inspiration for the CFAA came after Roggen, Ro- oh, Roggled Ro- Reagan. Reagan. <laughs> His evil twin, Roggled Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> Beware, Roggled Reagan.